From Honor Flight Chicago, this is a veteran's story. The story of a young man who grew up in a poor family in Chicago. Irv Abramson had hoped that by enlisting in the Army, it might help pay for his dream of going to college to become an engineer. But that dream was deferred, for the Army needed Irv, like so many others, on the battlefields of Europe. Irv Abramson, at age 18, would find himself in the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler's surprise last gasp offensive. Irv would nearly lose his life. A recipient of the Bronze Star, this Purple Heart veteran never spoke to anyone about the horrors he'd lived through until decades later, when his daughter came home from school with an assignment, interview a veteran. That school project would change the course of Irv Abramson's life. Now in his 94th year, Irv looks back. The war is raging in Europe and the Pacific. You're 17. Right. How does the world look through a 17-year-old's eyes at that point in time? Well, I had uh, recently, uh, at the beginning of my 17th year, graduated from high school, and uh, I had been working for money since I was nine years old, and by uh, 1943 had accumulated 300 bucks, and I figured that would get me into college somewhere, and uh, uh, it did indeed. I enrolled at uh, IAT, Illinois Institute of Technology, as uh, an engineer, which I had hoped to be, and I had no idea how I was going to pay for the rest of my education. Uh, I started classes at IIT, and within about six months or so, uh, the Department of Defense sent uh, uh, some reps into the colleges, engineering colleges, and uh, they uh, had assemblies, and they told all the wannabe engineers that if they uh, joined uh, the armed forces, the, uh, uh, the government would pay for our college educations. So it sounded like a pretty good deal, and uh, I enlisted. They, in fact, did send me to uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison into an Army engineering uh, uh, course, and uh, that lasted until I turned 18, And by that time, the war was going hot and heavy in Europe, and the government decided they needed soldiers more than engineers and uh, handed me orders to report to uh, Fort Sheridan and uh, for induction into the regular Army. You didn't know that was coming, did you? No, that was a big disappointment to all of uh, a large group of young men who had uh, done the same thing that I had. And... uh, uh, we were all pretty disappointed, and uh, but uh, you can't fight City Hall, so we were in the Army, and we all got st- stationed uh, with uh, Army units. Went through basic, and after basic, uh, had a short uh, leave of absence, and then was reassigned to uh, the 100th Combat Infantry Unit. From there, we uh, went overseas. You were a rifleman. I was a rifleman. I was a marksman. Uh, I got a medal for it. I called my mother and said, uh, Mom, you'll never know. I had never uh, handled a weapon in my entire life. And I said, Mom, 
I won a medal for sharpshooting. And she said, son, don't tell them you can shoot good. They'll put you on the front lines. You should always listen to your mother. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Because that's exactly what happened. And uh, I was with the uh, combat, 100 Combat Infantry uh, as one of these half dozen units that were fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. At that point in time, there had been a number of significant victories, D-Day, of course, and then follow-ups after that. But before the Bulge, there was maybe a sense that the end was near. And the Bulge was not expected. The German assault in the Ardennes was not expected. That is correct. The low and fighting guys like myself never knew any of the plans. We were told uh, to go forward and follow the guy in front of you. How difficult was it to not know? The big thing at that time that you thought about constantly was your life. You prayed constantly that uh, the enemy would not see you or know where you were. It was a moment-to-moment life and, uh, and constantly concerned with uh, your own safety. Uh, at that time, uh, it was the coldest winter that Europe had seen, especially in that area, uh, for decades. Uh, the temperature never got above zero. Uh, we were not properly dressed. Uh, we were constantly freezing our behinds off, and uh, uh, that too was of some concern, constantly trying to find ways to keep warm and uh, uh, moment to moment trying to get some nourishment, which uh, was not easy. We carried uh, army food with us, but you rarely had a chance to sit down and relax and have a meal. That was not part of it. Many's the time we had to uh, lay over in foxholes, and the foxholes would be uh, four to six inches deep in wo- freezing water. Uh, it was uh, it was a t- terrible situation to try to keep any warmth in your body. At one point, I had spent overnight in one of the foxholes, uh, ankle deep in the freezing water, and when they uh, gave the signal at dawn to move out, I c- could not feel my feet and I couldn't get out of the foxhole. A couple of guys came by and pulled me out. They put me on a stretcher and sent me back to a rest area. And uh, I was almost gleeful thinking that, oh boy, I'm on the way home. And, uh, but they wrapped my feet up in blankets and uh, it was an overnight stay. By morning, my feet had warmed up and uh, they, took my, they took my boots off, of course. and. Uh, took the wet socks away, and they gave me uh, a dry pair of socks and put those in the wet boots again. I was frozen all the time, and to this day, uh, when winter comes and the cold weather comes, I just dread it. So December 16th comes, and as a surprise, the artillery starts. Correct. And describe what that was like. We were in a heavily wooded area and uh, uh, creeping through the area, thinking we were advancing, and uh, 
we didn't know anything about the Battle of the Bulge. That was a news item that came later. Uh, and uh, the German artillery was very effective, very uh, accurate. They had a uh, gun called the M88, which became famous uh, uh, in uh, German, the German realm. And uh, they could, uh, the, the talk was that they could aim that and put, it, put the shell in your hip pocket. It was, they were so accurate. Well, because it was a heavily wooded area, uh, they, they decided that all they had to do was shoot the shell into the wooded area and hit the trees high. The shell would explode and shower the uh, soldiers with uh, white hot shrapnel. And uh, of course that was... Uh, and that's what uh, happened. That's exactly what happened. The shelling became very heavy. The orders were to try to dig in and find yourself some uh, place uh, for shelter. And uh, three of us started digging away at, a, at the ground. We had a tool uh, uh, similar to, uh, it was half shovel, half axe, and we chopped away at the ground. And between the three of us, we got about, uh, I don't know, eight, 10 inches deep. And then the, shell became, the shelling became so heavy that we couldn't uh, expose our bodies anymore. So we laid, the three of us laid down in this shallow hole, uh, and we had to lay on our sides in order to fit. Uh, one guy was in front of me, one guy was behind me. Uh, I, I was the sandwich, so to speak. And uh, we, uh, for a moment, we joked about that, and, uh, and then we all started praying. next thing I remembered was waking up, opening my eyes, and the sun was shining through the trees, and there were two first aid guys standing alongside this foxhole, and uh, they said, uh, can we help you up, soldier? And I just raised my arm up, and uh, that was the last I remembered for three days. Uh, I was told later that they pulled me out of the foxhole, took me back to a MASH hospital where uh, they did uh, every possible thing to save my life and they found that I had uh, broken both bones in my lower leg, my kneecap was smashed, uh, I had broken uh, three or four ribs, my left lung was punctured and uh, they didn't know how I survived the night. I had been in that hole overnight, uh, as it turned out. And they don't know how I survived. One of the doctors said, because I was fortunate enough to be in an area where it was so cold that the, my blood had congealed and saved, me, and saved me from bleeding out because with all of those wounds, the blood would have normally poured out of my body. And uh, so I guess, uh, in the end, uh, the cold saved my life, along with uh, uh, the good graces of our Lord and uh, uh, some unbelievably fantastic doctors at the MASH Hospital. You don't remember the actual impact. 
that led oh, to no. your wounds? Oh, no, no. I was in, at that point, I was in no pain whatsoever, not uh, uh, having uh, been wounded at the point of being wounded. Or, uh, of course, as I said, I was unconscious for three days in the MASH hospital. But when I awoke, I was not aware of pain. Uh, but, of course, at that point, I was pretty well doped up. Uh, and uh, so I can't say I didn't have pain, but uh, I remember being in my right mind because uh, I was talking to the nurses and the doctors, and uh, uh, one of the nurses that was assigned to me was especially friendly, and uh, we spoke about her writing a note for me to send home. Uh, I was uh, always aware that... Uh, when guys got wounded or, God forbid, killed, the first thing that happened was uh, the uh, Army would send a telegram home to the parents, and I knew that that, parent, that telegram would uh, traumatize my parents, and I thought if I could get a letter back to them fast enough telling them at least that I was alive, uh, that would help. And she did, in fact, this sweet little nurse, did, in fact, write a letter for me and mail it. Uh, a year later, going ahead a year later, when I had talked about all this with my parents, they said, well, the telegram arrived first saying that uh, uh, you were seriously wounded and uh, they would be in touch with us at some later point. At that point, we didn't know what was wrong with you. And then two days later, we got the letter and when we saw the letter, and it was not in your handwriting, we thought, God, was, were, was he blind? Did his hands get blown off? They didn't know what to think. So where I wanted to save them some trauma, I caused them more trauma. Double devastation <laughs> then. So The two men who were on either side of you in the sandwich you describe in the foxhole, did you know them? They were uh, casual uh, fighting friends. Uh, I didn't know them closely. I knew, uh, uh, if I remember, one was uh, Don and one was Alfred, I think. And uh, uh, after uh, my head cleared in the, in the MASH hospital, uh, I said, uh, are my buddies here? And it was at that point that they said they hadn't made it. They had died in that foxhole. And I have ever since felt some kind of guilt or, I don't know, they, they saved my life. They sandwiched me and saved my life. So. Uh, and I imagine over time you ask yourself the question, why did I survive? Always. And they didn't make that it. Stayed that has stayed with me forever. And uh, I attribute it to the good Lord and uh, good fortune, I guess, I don't know. So they keep you alive after unconsciousness for three days in the MASH hospital. Right. And then you're sent where for hospitalization? Uh, I, uh, they, they patched me up uh, as well as they could and uh, they couldn't do any uh, uh, major, the, the major surgeries that I needed, they couldn't do there. And after 
I think I was in the MASH hospital seven to ten days until I was uh, capable of being moved. And from there I was moved to uh, a very large general hospital in Dijon, France. Uh, one day I, uh, uh, they told me that uh, I was going home and I would be transferred to Paris, France, where an airplane would take me back to the USA. What were you thinking? What was your thinking then? Oh, I, 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 was, I was beside myself. It was, it's what every soldier wanted to hear, you're going home. Right. And uh, I had an interesting experience on the trip from Marseille to Paris. You're on a train. I was, yeah, they had outfitted uh, uh, trains. They took out the passenger seats and put uh, uh, little horizontal pegs into the side of the cars, and the stretchers would be attached to that. I was at that point still a stretcher uh, a case. During the uh, night, uh, I, was, uh, I developed uh, a very sharp pain in the uh, foot that had been casted, and uh, one of the first aid guys uh, looked at my foot. He said, yes, yeah, soldier, your foot had swollen up, and the cast is cutting in the ear foot, I'm going to go get a knife and cut the cast open and then uh, 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 that should relieve the pain. And while I'm going to get some tools, I'm going to have uh, my aide uh, stay with you and uh, 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 take care of you. And he took off and young lady came by and uh, a very pleasant young lady put her arm around me and started asking me questions about home and my family and anything to keep my mind off of uh, what was happening. And we spent a good uh, 15, 20 minutes together at that point until the first aid, aid guy came back with uh, a knife of some kind, and he did, in fact, uh, cut the cast open and uh, relieved the pain, and uh, that worked out very well. He said, you're okay now? I said, yeah. And the young lady hung around a little while longer speaking to me, and and uh, she, too, then said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm fine. And at that point, she put her arm around me and gave me a big kiss. And at an 18-year-old virgin, that meant a lot to me. So <laughs> uh, I was uh, very impressed. And sh she said, I'll see you later. And she took off. A uh, short time later, the first aid guy came back again and said, uh, you okay? I said, yeah. He said, by the way, do you know who that was that uh, you were talking to, took care of you? I said, not. I haven't the slightest idea. He said, soldier, that was Marlena Dietrich. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, you were you were just uh, making out with Marlena Dietrich. The famous and that German is my born fam actress. My famous 15 minutes of life. <laughs> She did remarkable things. She traveled troop yes. trains. She set aside her salary to aid dissidents and Jews who were trying to get out of the Third Reich. That is correct. And, and you she had was, the occasion to actually be kissed she, by Marlena. Absolutely. It's my, my 15 minutes of fame. trip back to the States will take you to a military hospital in Kansas for a long recovery. It'll be some time before you're reunited with your family, right? I looked pretty bad. I was a mess. 
and I didn't want my parents to see me at that time. And mentally, I wasn't ready uh, to uh, to get back together with my family. I kept writing them, telling them uh, my progress, and telling them they wanted to visit, but I said, no, not yet. I'm not uh, ready for visits yet. And I kept stalling them. And uh, finally, they elected uh, one of the family members, uh, happened to be an uncle of mine, to uh, uh, go out to Kansas to see if I was in one piece. And uh, I couldn't uh, do anything about it. And he, in fact, did come out and uh, uh, visited with me and uh, went back home and reported that I still had both arms, both legs, and uh, I was recovering. So they were happy about that. So when did you finally get home and reunite with your uh, family? That was in uh, December of uh, 1945. I was finally given a medical discharge and uh, returned home. Anyone who's gone through the extent of, of wounds that you did, the, the end of the war brings joy, but I imagine that joy is tempered by the fact that you're looking at a different life now because you've got severe physical problems and PTSD that uh, yes we also those of us that were on battlefields all suffered from PTSD uh it was uh, a pretty universal thing they hadn't invented that title yet uh, i think they called it at that time shell shock shell shock right and uh, we all had that problem uh when i came home my parents told me that uh Night after night, I would uh, awake uh, screaming or hollering or uh, giving somebody orders or something, and uh, I scared the heck out of them uh, uh, so many evenings uh, after at bedtime. Uh, but uh, as time went on, that eased up. But uh, I uh, wanted to get back to uh, my education. Uh, I knew that uh, this was something I'm going to have to do. Uh, to be any kind of success in life. And although I re-enrolled and tried, uh, I could not concentrate. And uh, uh, I'd have to read a paragraph over three times before uh, it would sink in. And I tried very hard for many months to uh, uh, continue my education, but it was uh, fruitless. And uh, I was very fortunate at that time to meet a beautiful young lady. Excuse me. Who, uh, who eventually, uh, with whom I became engaged and married. And uh, I knew that in order to have any kind of successful marriage, I better get my behind uh, going and get a job, and uh, that's what I did. I found gainful employment and uh, 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 started a new life, married life. As time went by, my uh, war experiences uh, started to uh, diminish. The effects of those experiences uh, started to diminish, and uh, I was able to uh, concentrate on my new existence and I never wanted to talk about any of my military time uh, 
my wife didn't know anything about what I had gone through or been through or been, and uh, nor did my children. And it wasn't until many, many years later when uh, my daughter got into, one of my daughters got into high school, and she had to do a report, and they asked her to find a veteran to interview. And uh, she says, yeah, I got one of those at home. Oh, boy. <laughs> so uh, she uh, asked me, started asking me all kinds of questions, and it brought back so many memories that uh, uh, on a one-to-one basis with my daughter, I broke into tears with her uh, uh, interview. And uh, uh, she, I had then was asked to go to the school, and uh, things started to open up. Things started to get a little easier remembering. And uh, then this wonderful thing happened with uh, an organization, all-volunteer organization called Honor Flight Chicago, and uh, uh, that uh, took veterans to Washington, D.C. to see the their memorials, and I was lucky enough to be a guest on one of their flights. I want to ask uh, you about that in a moment, but okay. let me take you back to your daughter. It's a school assignment yes. that allows you to have some therapy in telling your story. It's a therapeutic journey for you to kind it of was, unburden yourself. It was difficult at first to try to pull those memories out of my psyche, which I had buried, and I, I really wanted to keep them buried. But uh, uh, I thought I would be doing the right thing by letting the young people know what war was all about and uh, uh, the whys and wherefores of World War II. Well, when you revealed to your daughter what you went through, did your wife, Doris, know a lot about that, or did you have to Not, tell? None at all. You had to tell, she, you needed to tell her too. It was then. all a uh, news item to the entire family. Uh, by that time, uh, I had another daughter and a son, and uh, uh, for some reason, Doris knew that this was something that would affect me and never asked me about my service. She was satisfied to know that I had uh, been in military service, I had survived it, and she was content with that. And I don't know, maybe somewhere in her mind she thought, well, someday she will find out about it. But it wasn't until uh, much later that uh, we opened up and uh, or I opened up to telling people about my experience. She was your strength in life. She was your life partner for 72 oh, years God, you were yes, married. Yes, so much so. She passed this she year. She passed uh, two months ago, and I miss her terribly. Well, she had an enormous impact on what you did when you began to, your careers. Yes, she had a great calming effect. She uh, knew that I had... Uh, uh, suffered uh, uh, some outrageous experience and uh, she didn't want to delve into it but she knew that uh, I had been affected by uh, my military life and uh, she did as much as she could to make my life thin 
peaceful, calm, and um, uh, I was happy with that and I didn't want to get into it. you about your community service. You served on a number of local boards and commissions. We had finally moved up to Skokie and uh, I had some friends uh, that uh, were uh, involved with the village government and they asked me to uh, join them and I did so as a volunteer and uh, served uh, on the village commissions uh, for some 25 years. I served on uh, a, um, a commission for the uh, uh, handicapped and uh, then consumer protection and a couple other jobs that I had. And uh, Why was that important to you? I always wanted to give back for uh, the benefits that I had in life. I got uh, very lucky that... Uh, uh, once I started working and everything uh, started to go well for me, I was very thankful. I had come from a very poor background, very poor home, and uh, I uh, got lucky and worked hard uh, and uh, made some good money, and I was able not to uh, uh, not only have enough for my own uh, well-being but to help my parents out and uh, that that was very uh, satisfying so you go on honor flight Chicago in I think 2009 shortly oh, after it starts right it started in two, 2008 that I recall and uh, uh, sometime at the beginning of the year in 2009, I saw an article in a magazine or a newspaper uh, talking about this organization uh, that sent uh, servicemen uh, uh, expense, all expense paid to Washington. I thought it was a miraculous thing, and uh, I didn't think of going myself, but I certainly uh, had... Uh, uh, many sympathies for veterans and I called uh, the organization with the phone number that they had listed in the paper and uh, I got hold of uh, a lady uh, who learned, later turned out to be a lady named Mary Petinato and I said I'd like to make a donation and uh, I, I guess I had said I'm a veteran. She says well we don't take uh, uh, donations from veterans uh, I said, well, no, come on, you know, let me donate. I have uh, great sympathy for veterans. Anyway, we went around and around with that, and she finally said, no, but if you're a veteran, we'd like you to take the trip. I said, no, I, I've been to Washington. And she said, no, you have not been to Washington until you've gone with Honor Flight. And she finally talked me into going on that trip, and that trip turned out to be so unbelievably wonderful, fantastic, I can't say enough about it. And when I finally came uh, back from that trip, I asked if I could volunteer for the organization. And ever since 2009, I've been an active volunteer uh, 
doing fundraising and recruiting and uh, working with uh, Mary Pettinato and uh, other, uh, uh, many other people in the organization. It's a thank you that's so important that many people don't realize is there, but when you see it and feel it and you're part of it, that has great value for everybody who's been through someone, something Ab- like you've been absolutely, through. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think there's a veteran that has experienced uh, any association with Honor Flight, and especially the trip, that doesn't rave about it and doesn't everybody say, uh, this has been one of the best experiences of my life. When you look back now, Irv, on your life, 94 years, 72 with Doris, your wife, an experience that not many people had, nor would they want to have, in war. How do you put it all together? At this point in my life, uh, I am so thankful that I survived. I can't imagine... uh, having achieved the age of 94. My father died at 59, and I keep thinking, well, the good Lord gave me the rest of his years, and, uh, and that's why I've been blessed with um, the age I've attained. I can't imagine uh, not having uh, the Lord's help in finding the woman that I married and uh, was married to for 72 years. As a matter of fact, next month would have been our 73rd anniversary. And uh, we, it's the only thing that gives me uh, some comfort. Uh, and as sad as the situation is, I am so grateful, thankful that we attained that. How many people are able to say they were married for 73 years. Not many. Uh, How many people can say they made it to 94? So I am so grateful, so thankful. And uh, after thinking back on my life and not only the things that happened during uh, military service, but uh, half a dozen other things that I went through uh, through the years, how I managed to survive is unbelievable. And I'm just so grateful, so thankful. And uh, I appreciate uh, so much all of the things that I've experienced. It's been a great go. You've been a blessed man. Very much so, very much so. Thanks, Irv. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your contributions to your community and your country. Thank you so much, I really appreciate that. hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, 
to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.